welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. This is your host, Chris Harmon, and today I have the special opportunity to introduce you to a guest that you will be seeing a lot of, hopefully in the near future, who has written a book that is very bold and, and very helpful and, and very healing to some of the, the toxic theology that we're working through. So today I'd like to introduce to this show a friend of mine, the author of Saying No to God, Matthew Cortman. Matthew, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me on the show. It's an honor to be here with you. So I, I want to start just by asking you, what has your spiritual journey looked like up until this point? Uh, it's It's been quite a ride, I'd describe it as. Um, I grew up quite conservative. Um, so full disclosure, I grew up uh, and still am a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, that, For those that do know, that is a denomination, Protestant, that usually ends up being grouped with evangelicals um, by most pollsters. On the other hand, uh, Seventh-day Adventists do not consider themselves evangelical, and they have beliefs that are quite antithetical to mainstream evangelicals. So, for instance, we deny, um, we deny an eternally burning hell. So that, that's oh kind boy. of, we also deny inerrancy. Um, so that's, you know, you would imagine that those would be like the two big pillars. I mean, they are usually what people cite for what brought down Rob Bell. Um, but yeah. surprisingly for Seventh-day Adventists, evangelicals don't seem to, to get rubbed the wrong way. Um, they sort of just, many of them now just kind of look at Adventists and go, oh, well, you're just kind of odd. <laughs> so I guess... <laughs> To some degree, um, Seventh-day Adventists are today kind of like what Romans used to think of Jews. Uh, it's like it's like Rob Bell's the Christian, <laughs> were the Jews, and we're like they're like ah, oh, you know those Adventists, they're they're odd, they're they're odd. Rob Bell starts <laughs> talking the same way. Now you're just crazy. You're not yeah. an Adventist, so how can you be talking like this? <laughs> um, but so it's it's one of those weird uh, denominations because it's so influenced by evangelical circles. So even though inerrancy is not uh, something that's taught, and even though um, you would that you would think that'd be a dividing line, many Adventists are very influenced by evangelical thought. And so uh, when I grew up, um, even though I was never taught inerrancy, the perspectives I would hear almost tacitly assumed a perspective of inerrancy. So mm -hmm. I grew up imagining the Bible worked in the realm of inerrancy, even though I didn't actually like have that. So I grew up in a very fundamentalist conservative kind of background. My exposure with an Adventist in, in Adventism wasn't the liberal sort um, that I later got acquainted with. I grew up originally with quite a, a hardline conservative form of it and um, kind of Growing up that way and then eventually deconstructing uh, by reading certain uh, scholarly books and kind of going on quite a journey up and down in regards to not my faith, but in regards to understanding my faith and kind mm -hmm. of putting it into words. It's been an interesting experience, but I think what it's done is it's helped given me a perspective, a really healthy perspective of um, understanding both how conservatives understand the Bible and think through faith and what what is genuinely their concerns and what ends up being the roadblocks for them, um, as well as understanding why liberals think the way that they do and why they don't understand conservatives and where they come from. Um, 
and that kind of a perspective is is really healthy um not because it's always a, a value or a virtue to be in the middle of everything because sometimes you need to be in one place or the other but in these cases, it's very helpful if you're trying to find ways to bridge the gap and bring people together. It's really important that you genuinely understand both perspectives. And I've mm. met many conservatives who have no understanding of liberals, and I've met many liberals who don't have a clue as to why conservatives are the way they are. And even the terms I'm using here uh, are so relative because different people listening to this podcast will have a different view of what a conservative is and what a liberal is. Um, mm -hmm. So even those terms are not very helpful because different people have different ideas of, of what that means. And so it's a very convoluted field. And I think that the problem today that we face in theology and in the church is that people are all across the map everywhere on the game board and no one really understands where they're standing and no one can talk to each other because we're essentially all talking past each other. So um, that kind of recognition of like the inability for us to have a conversation that could even bring us to a new direction or a new uh, kind of state of, of harmony is exactly what sort of has helped to shape and motivate um, the kind of perspective and direction that I've had in my own work. Hmm. No, that That's really good as, as far as the, the Seventh-day Adventist I actually didn't know that that they didn't hold to those viewpoints. So with within that framework, obviously those are some very big tenets that when going through deconstruction get kind of knocked down within evangelical circles. But through, as you said, re-understanding your faith, what 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 were some of the things that that you rethought? So I think the first major issue for me which is, it's, it's kind of funny. Adventism does not support inerrancy, but because I'd grown up with a tacit assumption of inerrancy, that was a huge kind of stumbling block for me to have to deal with, which was how, and still I continue to work with, because there really, it is such a fundamental issue. Um, the Bible is uh, authoritative in terms of Christian tradition, in terms of understanding what, God has been doing with this people, Israel, and those who draw on its traditions. But how does that work? And that mm -hmm. is something that, you know, I've had to rethink and through. And the funny thing was realizing eventually that, oh, wait, the Adventist tradition never even supported inerrancy. So that was helpful to me in my own personal journey at the beginning to recognize that, oh, I was actually coming from a tradition that wasn't even supposed to think this way, um, mm -hmm. which, of course, can give you strength and realization. Uh, kind of ties in with my book as well, since my book is kind of arguing that all Christians are thinking in a way that their own tradition didn't allow them to think in. Um, yeah. <laughs> funny, those parallels there, right? <laughs> oh, um, yeah. But the thing is, is that when I was going through this, you know, inerrancy was a biggie. But then, like, I think for me, my deconstruction was very different in terms of what many people who are emerging from an evangelical background usually describe it as so and this is less to do with my adventism as much as it is to do with how my mom raised me um she she kind of and i don't think it was intentional but she raised me in such a way that she kept um my personal relationship with jesus and my idea of spirituality distinct and separate from dogma so usually 
you know, that's not considered to be the best thing. You want your, your dogma and your spirituality to be connected in some sense because they'll feed into each other. But in my case, it was helpful because when I started deconstructing the dogma, it had no effect on my spirituality. So hmm. I never associated things I had believed as doctrine as in any way affecting what I believe about God and his relationship with me. So I didn't have to undergo the kind of trauma that many people undergo um, or like how John Shelby Spong, who just for the record, I disagree with plenty. Uh, just, there's no one should think that I'm quoting him and go, Oh my goodness, he must, you know, if there's a conservative listening, but um, he <laughs> says brilliant, brilliant things. And, you know, uh, you should always listen to anybody who says brilliant things, no matter who they are, uh, hmm. because, you know, it's, you don't have to take it wholesale, but there's, a, you want whatever truth is. Truth is all, what is it? I forget who said it, but someone said all truth is God's truth. Right. And all yeah. humans are never going to have all truth. So no matter what, you're going to find somebody you disagree with. So like, you know, I could, I, I could, you can take any author and say like, well, really that should be a caveat for anybody. You quote somebody and you should always be assumed there's an asterisk that says, and there's plenty of stuff I disagree with. Them. <laughs> like, yeah. That's life. Like if you're like, I wholesale endorse everything this person says, that's pretty unbelievable. But John Toby Spong has this great term of phrase he uses. I think it's in uh, Christianity Must Change or Die. And um, he goes ahead and says, we have to figure out whether the death of our God is the death of God. And hmm. by that, he means, uh, is the death of our image of who God was actually uh implying that god himself as an entity is dead or that we were simply mistaken and many people when they undergo deconstruction they end up having both the doctrine and the entire image of who god is destroyed or taken down and in that process they come to kind of view themselves as agnostic or atheist they come to kind of say well i i reject this and so that's all there is and sometimes you see this even with new atheists where they will talk about God, but the God that they describe that they're so against is just the very specifically evangelical God. And, mm -hmm. and so at some point you're like, well, there's a problem here, right? You, you're claiming that you're against God as a whole, but the way you describe God is pretty specific. So it doesn't sound like you're really against all gods. It just sounds like you're against the specific one. And you're still assuming that that's the God that would be in any tradition. So mm. the hard thing is recognizing when you're deconstructing that the death of the God you knew might not actually be the death of God. You might have just been mistaken and blind. You might need to realize that actually God's still been there. You just haven't been viewing him correctly. Um, and that's a really tough thing. For me, it wasn't because thankfully I didn't associate the two. So I could start deconstructing the doctrines and going, ooh, um, it, all right, I know wherever God is, that's what he's been doing. So I believe God's there. So let me look at what's actually been happening. Let me see what's actually the case. And then I'll be able to start seeing where the spirit has been moving. That's always mm -hmm. been my perspective. I don't try to say, well, why doesn't the spirit work this way? It's like, well, where, what is he doing? And then let me see if I can figure that out. And, you know, where is she going? And let me figure that out. And if I do that, then I can actually start to understand, okay, then 
this is what I need to put my time and attention to, not trying to do some very dumb apologetics arguments that are going to waste all my time and energy trying to say that what's happening isn't really what's happening. And people have been doing that for far too long. Apologetics at its best should be making sense of the way things are to illuminate where Christ is, not trying to explain away how things are in order to explain why Christ isn't where people seem to think he is. Uh, mm. Those That way of doing apologetics, and I'm sure there'd be people who disagree with that description, um, is definitely <laughs> problematic because, you know, most apologetics are all about there are no inconsistencies in the Bible. Very few apologetics are, of course, there's inconsistencies in the Bible. Now, let me explain to you why that's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of apologetics we need. And that's the kind of apologetics we're going to need for the complete foreseeable foregoing future. The old style of apologetics is just really a grasping uh, onto the rails of the ship before, you, before it sinks, because you're like, no, I can still defend this. Um, my own book, <laughs> of course, is trying to just completely bypass the whole sinking ship together. Um, yeah. So, you know, my book is really just saying, well, you know, forget forget the question about the inconsistencies for a moment. Let's just ask whether or not um, the inconsistencies should even merit your attention at all. Because the mm -hmm. only reason they merit attention for many is because they sit, they think in their minds, oh, no, this is, this is something that has to be addressed. This is a, a problem, potentially. And the reason is because they're assuming not even necessarily that the Bible is inerrant, but that God is inerrant. And that, I think, is the discussion that has not been had prior to my book, or at least not in any substantive, prolonged way, is people, when they're thinking about Scripture, um, they, you know, liberals and conservatives both agree that God is inerrant. What mm -hmm. they do on is whether or not the Bible's inerrant. So conservatives are like, well, the Bible is an exact inerrant replica of what God said. So that's definitely inerrant, just like God is. And liberals are just saying, well, no, the Bible's not inerrant because we don't know. We, you know, if God said it, yes, but we can't be sure that the Bible is because it doesn't seem to match up. And the truth of the matter is the Bible itself does not actually give us reason to think that uh, we must assume God is inerrant. And that's, mm. that's really where um, the whole conversation, when you get to that point, that's when scripture starts to come alive. And there's all these texts that suddenly change not only particular aspects of the conversations we've been having, but the whole paradigm itself. Yeah, no, and, and I'm glad you brought that up. I, I remember when I was, I think it was 19, 19 or 20. I was sitting in on this Bible study that was led by a few of my friends uh, and one of the guys there was heavily into the new apostolic reformation. Um, and he was talking about the ability to change God's mind. So me as a five point Calvinist, as an inerrantist, I very happily chimed in and was like, yeah, you're wrong. And I explained it as this, the way I tried to explain those passages away was that they're, some kind of physical emotional explanation of a metaphysical occurrence trying to explain who god is instead of just actually wrestling with the text which actually brings us to your book so so let's talk about your book um and, and i have a question kind of start that out 
I, and I'm kind of newer. You said you were talking to to Trip Fuller, and before we started, and I know that he's very much into open theism and process theology. But does this book kind of line up into that category? Well, it depends on uh, who you ask and how you think about it. So, for clarity's sake, uh, Thomas J. Ord uh, endorsed this book. He said, "Saying no to God." Uh, may be the most holy thing we can do. Reading this book may be the second. Um, <laughs> that was a very, that's a big praise. That's a very funny, uh, lighthearted endorsement. Um, I doubt that it was serious, but um, it, nonetheless, I was super thankful. He's a wonderful human being and a, and a great friend and a kind person. Um, yeah. and, but he obviously does see uh, this book as being really... Uh, really easy to integrate into open theism and, and understand. Um, I have my own personal quibbles and things in regards to open theism and process theology, and I'm, I'm working through some of those to address in the second book that I'm writing. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that in a broad category, there's many points uh, agreed with or there's many points of agreement between the two works, uh, the two ideas, um, because essentially... What my book is really trying to deal with is not the issue of uh, foreknowledge, but the issue of what is what is the role of God's character, how does God relate to human beings, and, and what is our ability to gain a clear perspective on what God is versus what God isn't. And mm-hmm. that, those are all things that are super helpful. Um, now where there are things where we might, I have issues sometimes with open theism. I'm not, and I'm not saying this dogmatically, I'm still exploring all of these issues and reading the literature and kind of coming to grasp my own perspective. But I would say that uh, for myself, there are things that I think that could conflict, but then like, that's not, that's like with all good theology, there's no perfect system. So people are always going to, uh, have tension and that's really what's helpful because the more the more that there's healthy tension between views the more that each one refines each other and leads to a better view in the future so i hope Mm. that um other people will will pick up on both the similarities and the tensions so that my views can be changed and be better refined and and other process theologians might be pushed and changed with their own ideas um Mm -hmm we need a lot more conversation and healthy mutual growth rather than uh, what has been the case where people just yell at each other. And Calvin says, screw you, Luther. And Luther goes, screw you, Calvin. Um, that, that doesn't really help anybody because once you both die and once your super passionate followers die, um, both people on either side are going to end up reading each other anyways and, and kind of evolving their views regardless. So yeah, I definitely think that um, the way that my book is written and the kind of topic it's dealing with, because it's going beneath the surface, it's trying to deal with the foundational issues, it leaves itself uh, open to being useful and free to be utilized by a multitude of perspectives. So I definitely can understand how this work could definitely uh, help with regards to process uh, theology and open theism. It also, I think, opens itself up to a number of perspectives that can utilize it because it's so foundational. It's trying to deal with such a um, bottom layer 
to all of our other ideas mm. that it proves itself really um, open to utilization from all those different perspectives. But at the same time, will I think inevitably kind of reshape how each perspective handles it because I think that this book really is tackling uh, such a foundational issue that for the most part has not been assumed by any of the perspectives as they've developed. Yeah. So I do suspect that in unforeseen ways, the ideas in this book will change or affect in different ways to differing degrees, all of the perspectives that are utilizing it, because none of them were thinking along these specific lines when those ideas were being created. And I think that there will be uh, some ramifications and some, you know, implications that are drawn from this that perhaps right immediately don't seem exactly clear, but over time, I suspect will be drawn out. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what I, I really appreciate about what you're doing here is not only are you asking a question that is so vital in the life of, of the deconstructing or questioning Christian, but you're also asking it on an even deeper level of, of what do we, if, if the Bible isn't inerrant and we either we stand on that or we don't, what do we do with God's character in the Old Testament when it looks like people are saying no to him as, as you write about in your book? And with that being said, give me so that we can get into application. Give me like a mile high vantage point of, of your, your argument for, for, for your book. Well, the argument for my book, Mile High, is that scripture is not inerrant. God's character is inerrant. And that's not to say that God's nature is inerrant, but God's character is. And that's a, a careful distinction because what essentially I'm trying to argue here for is, right, and, it, and it's very hard if somebody's listening to this because the, the biblical stories themselves are so uniquely paradoxically clear about their depiction of this dynamic. And that is really the strength. Every time I, I hear people who read the book, their number one thing is not, wow, Matt, you speak so eloquently. I don't. Or, wow, Matt, you really managed to you know, describe this so well. I don't. But I do manage to quote Bible texts pretty well, and they manage to get the statements out pretty good. And um, people tend to be convinced of the argument in the book purely off of, the rhetoric of scripture itself mm -hmm. and the way the stories work. And so when you look at these stories, and there are many of them both in the Hebrew Bible as well as in the New Testament, what you end up realizing is that in these stories, there is this dynamic of a human being who hears God propose or talk or present himself uh, as something more akin to the devil than Jesus. That human being rejects this image of God, says no to it, demands uh, that God return to the more Jesus-like image, and God then quote-unquote changes in some cases, or quote-unquote just actually does change, just not the devil image anymore, suddenly shifts to the Jesus image, and the human is blessed because they contradicted God and fought him. Hmm. Now that description, just in the generic, already sounds crazy. The, the problem is there's so many versions of that story that appear in scripture. 
that it's a repeated proven pattern. It's not something that you can just say, well, that was a one-off tradition. Mm. That was a one-off idea. No, it clearly carries itself from the beginning of the Bible all the way through. And it recognizes then that there were Jews and Israelites who were perceiving God in this way repeatedly prolonged over time. And so since that's a part of scripture, you do have to deal with this, this motif, this theme and say, how does this conceptually work? What is the logic that makes this happen? Because the way that in terms of inerrancy of scripture, the logic does not work. Mm -hmm. Because according to the inerrancy of scripture, it works on the assumption that God's words are inerrant. And so if God says something and he tells you it's his will, it does not matter what it is. It does not matter how it is. It's wrong. It's right. Always. So, you know, wh where you get this idea often from is when people are describing how you can't disagree with something in the Bible because your view of morality is fallen. Like this is a common idea. Like mm -hmm. it only looks bad to you what God did over there because you're not God and you've fallen so far and your view is so, so morphed and skewed that you have no ability to judge what's right and wrong. Or, you know, God knows so much more and he has so much more wisdom. So he'll be able to do so much better in terms of understanding morality. In other words, the conservative paradigm is to say that we have no ability to actually um, disagree with anything in scripture or God. Mm -hmm. What we see in the Bible itself, however, is that actually that uh, does, that's just not the case. It doesn't happen that way because what ends up happening is that we see in scripture human beings who do believe that God's words are not inerrant, that they can refuse them, contradict them, and fight them. So if God's words are not inerrant in these cases, where does that leave us? Hmm. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned earlier about the Reformed tradition and Calvinism, right? Because Calvin actually believed this same idea. Uh, what's funny is, of course, and that's been the history of this idea, uh, people recognize it because Scripture is so explicitly clear on it, but then they don't actually usually let its implications affect the rest of their views. Hmm. So Calvin recognized that what was happening in these stories did indeed suggest that there that this inerrancy issue was kind of a problematic thing but he also recognized something that a lot of modern evangelicals have skipped because most evangelicals are trying to avoid these passages because of the idea that god changes hmm. and open theism has tried to embrace the idea that god does change um and a lot of the confusion regarding all of this is, uh, for instance, uh, explored by David Lamb in his book, God Behaving Badly. He mentions uh, briefly about how um, God is always said not to change in regards to his character, um, whereas um, the application of not changing is not given in scripture to like his actions. Mm -hmm. So you know, God may always never change in regards to the good, but God may very well come up with a different plan or a different idea in regard. And so open theism goes towards that trajectory of, and I think they're, they're accurate in that sense that God's character doesn't change. But on the other hand, God is definitely uh, going to change the different ways he can do. But then of course that goes into like issues of foreknowledge and mm -hmm. I'm not going there in my book, but 
what Calvin and Luther and Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth and others all seem to have picked up on is the interesting fact that when these stories occur, the character never claims that he's basing his rejection of God's actions on the basis of their morality. So when Abraham objects to God, he says, far be it from you, a.k.a. this is not like you. Hmm. You are not like this. These are not your ways. You need to change back to who you are. When Moses objects to God in Exodus 32, he says the same way, show me your real ways. Show me your ways because these are not your true ways. I know what your ways are, and they're not this, so go back. Hmm. Uh, When Jacob fights and pushes against God, the same business. God comes as a curse. Jacob rejects the curse and says, I'm not letting you go unless you show me that you're a blessing. Why? Because you have always been a blessing, and I'm not going to let you leave with the assumption that you only come to curse. Hmm. So there's always this interesting dynamic repeated, and this goes with Jesus in the New Testament as well, but the idea is is that the person who's objecting to God roots their objection in who God is. Mm-hmm. So there's this, it's this faithful disobedience. I am disobeying you for out of obedience to who you really are. I disobey the you now for the you that truly was. Uh, and who I still believe is. Hmm. Um, And so what you end up having in this kind of a scenario is what Calvin said was to fight against God with weapons God provided you. Uh, Or or to put it more strengthfully, he he added, he said, well, it's like you're fighting God and and he's the one who's helping you beat him. Hmm. So... There's this interesting dynamic, and what's interesting is in each case, it always proves true. So in, you know, Jacob's case, God does bless. And what is God's blessing to Jacob? God says, you have defeated God, your name will be Israel, and your descendants, basically, who are going to be called Israel, they're going to keep fighting God and defeating him too. So there's a strange sort of dynamic in which this idea continues to be repeated. Um, you're going to fight me, I'm going to help you fight me, and you're going to win because I help you win, and that's the blessing I give you. Hmm. So what seems to be the common denominator in all of these is that God doesn't actually change. Even in Exodus 32, where it says, and God changed his mind about the evil he planned, the next chapter describes this interaction as friendship between the divine and humanity, which is strange. And then the next chapter after that, God says, all right, I'm going to show you my ways. And when he does, his ways are exactly like Moses was fighting for Hmm. and saying who he was all the time. So there's this explicit um, pronouncement that God's ways are exactly how Moses thought they are. They're not the way God was presenting them. And so where does this leave you when God seems to present himself opposite in these stories from who he actually is? And what you end up getting is what Luther described as a test, that in these stories, God is testing his uh, most faithful people as to whether they truly know him. Do they follow him because he has the authority or do they follow him because of his character? Would they follow him if he were Moloch or Satan or anybody else? Or do they follow him uh, because there's something intrinsic to the heart of God 
that makes God somebody worthy to be followed after and worshipped? Um, is there a difference between the ways of Moloch and the ways of Yahweh? And are they important enough that if Yahweh begins to act like Moloch, uh, Moses is going to actually fight back and say, no, uh, your ways are better. So in that sense, this, this real issue about the heart of God, Scripture presents this unique portrait of a God whose character remains firm uh, and who's very interested in humanity recognizing that character and distinguishing it from those other characters of deities that are not worthy to be worshipped. So that this isn't a case of, I'm the only God, that's the reason you should follow me. But and it's not a case of, I have the authority and you should follow me, but rather that there is something intrinsic to love that makes it worth you following me. And uh, if you can't recognize what love is, then how can you follow me? So in that perspective, what my book is really kind of trying to do in, in bringing out this idea is to say, okay, if it's the character of God that's actually what's at stake here. If it's the character of God that really matters, then in truth here, what's fascinating is your arguments are not wrong that you said you used to give with, Cal with arguing about Calvinism. Hmm. God here is not actually changing. God is, in fact, staying the same. He's not suddenly taking new information. That's what these stories try to avoid entirely, is claiming that God is getting new information from Moses. No, Moses is just spitting back what God himself was saying. But what's clear here is that this is also undermining Calvinism as a theory, because it is not the case that just because God says it, you accept it. Hmm. Right. There are there are things where God will say something to you and you in the Bible as a faithful person have to be willing to object to this. If you do not out of faith object to it, then you are unfaithful. Hmm. You have fallen short. If Moses said, yes, your will be done when God said, I want to kill all the Israelites, if he did not fight up for them. It's, I would not be surprised if he would have lost his ability to have leadership. He lost it in the story for striking the rock because he didn't listen to God. But I'm pretty sure this would have been another moment in which Moses could have easily lost his ability to be leader of the Israelite people because this was a huge testing ground. If you know who I am, then you can lead my people. If you don't know who I am, if you don't know the difference between me and a foreign god, then why would I entrust you to give the law and to present me? Now, some people listening are going to go, because they're already uber liberal, they've already gone so far down the road, they're going to say, are you seriously telling me that you think this really happened? Do you really believe that these stories occurred? Do you think that God actually acts this way? Do you? Look, I'm a very open-minded person. I think that when you're dealing with the idea of God and the divine, any limits you put on that are silly. Hmm. They are, uh, you know, it's the same way with um, Jonah and the whale. Uh, <laughs> although it obviously wasn't a whale, it was a giant fish. But um, the thing is, is that people will endlessly debate. Uh, it's ridiculous to think that that could happen. And blah, blah, blah. Look, if God is all powerful, it's not ridiculous to assume that God could have done all kinds of things mm -hmm. 
the question is to ask, what can we learn from it? And what maybe are the intentions of the author? But why are you going to debate if, if it's not illogical, if we're not saying God made a, a circle square, uh, that a circle is a square, if we're not saying something that just is illogically impossible, then the discussion is kind of mute. You can argue to your blue in the face what you think God would or would not do with whatever powers God is believed to have. That's not really the issue. But if that's a stumbling block, it doesn't really matter whether you believe that these stories are true. Because what it ends up telling you is there's a principle in all of these stories. Mm -hmm. In all these stories, it tells us that if God were to be with us, and if God were to say something that was contrary to his character, the only accurate response that we have is to deny that devil-like image and to demand and affirm the true Jesus-like image. Hmm. That is, in fact, the criteria, the test, that God's character is what we affirm, not what God says. And if what God says contradicts his character, we're to refuse it in Scripture. That is the great test and the great blessing, which in Genesis 32, it says God gives the people of Israel, those who fight God. So if that's the case, then it's even more so that when we're reading scripture and we're reading the words of human beings describing God, that if we have the freedom and responsibility to deny the words of God, if they were to contradict his character, we also have a responsibility to deny the words in and by humans within scripture that portray God's words if they go against his character. Hmm. So that gives us this huge principle that when reading anything that is attributing to God, something that is opposite of God, we must wrestle and struggle like Jacob to ascertain whether this is a curse that must be rejected. And if so, to reject it and to affirm the blessing that is opposite of it. That kind of a foundation, that sort of an understanding of the relationship between God and man um, is, is paramount. And what's paramount about it is that this is an idea that's already inherent within Scripture. This is not something that a progressive Christian has to try and argue for philosophically. You don't have to come up with some weird new arguments to convince your conservative friend that it makes logical sense. Scripture already has this idea in it. It means that from the very beginning, the Bible already had people who understood that God's words were not the criteria and that it was a responsibility of human beings to object to divine images that were a curse rather than a blessing. Recognizing that principle, whether or not you believe a certain story actually happened or not, that's fine. That's your freedom to to take however you can in your faith journey to understand things the way you do. But whether you do believe it happened uh, or whether you don't, we don't have God in front of us today. We don't have God arguing directly with us. We have the scriptures. And what we learn from the scriptures is that in principle, we are in fact to disagree with uh, what they say, if in fact what they say goes against God's character. And since the Bible characters have the ability to disagree with those things, then that means that in principle, human beings do have a moral capacity 
to understand morality well enough to hold God to account. Mm. The, it is it is illogical according to scripture and according to C.S. Lewis to try and argue and say that human beings have such a deformed morality that they cannot tell the difference between good and evil and only God understands it well enough. That does not match the depiction of scripture. If that were true, Moses could not argue with God. Abraham could not argue with God. Jacob could not win against his fight with God. They do, however, win because they have a morality that is capable of understanding what God has taught them and then utilizing that. And so the fact that they can pass the test tells us that we can pass the test, we can understand what scripture is, and we can defend God's character because the better we understand God's character, the better we begin to understand the trajectory that God has been taking scripture for all this period and where he's leading the church continually. Hmm. Man, Matt, that is so good. Um, wow. A lot to unpack there. And uh, if anyone wants to know more, get it, get the book, read the book. It, 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 it's going to be very helpful for you. Um, I guess then with all of that in mind, a twofold question that I have is, A, where did the church miss the boat? And B, with the church missing the boat on when we lose against God? Like where, where did we uh, lose the ability to be able to discern what's the difference between losing against God to uh, represent God's character and saying no to God to uh, respect and uphold God's character? That's a wonderful question. That's beautiful. Um, the truth is, I think the, the funny thing about the idea of saying no to God is that it sounds so radical, but in truth, we've actually been doing it since forever. Yeah. Like even Christians who affirm inerrancy and say that God, you know, whatever he says must be done. No Christian actually fundamentally follows that because uh, what we end up doing is we, we say no to God in lots of small ways every day, even if you're a fundamentals conservative. Um, if, if you're reading Leviticus in church and you, you read out loud the passage about uh, putting to death uh, men who sleep with other men, um, which, by the way, for those who are literalists, says nothing about homosexuality, says nothing about same-sex attraction, says nothing about same-sex marriage, obviously, says nothing about same-sex, you know, love or, or living together. What it does say is that the sexual act between two males is forbidden. But of course, uh, regardless of the anti-literalist way people read that, which is funny, you know, they add in things that are not there in the text. Um, because, of course, the reason they do that is because the text sounds pretty biased and prejudiced if it's only talking about men and it's only speaking about... It becomes more complicated, so people like to, to make things simpler. But when you read that text, if somebody in church was to say, yeah, we need to follow the rule and, and go kill the, the peop- men who sleep with other men, we need, to, we need to do that. They all go ahead. That guy goes ahead and puts his hand up. Somebody in the church is going to probably call 911. 
yeah. more than one person, right? And this is the point. Like everyone in that church can be like the word of God, we stand or live or die, you know, whatever, blessed be the name of God, whatever he says we do. They can be amening all that they want. The moment that that person goes ahead and says, uh, yeah, we need to go kill some gays. Somebody in that church is going to go call 911 and be like, there's a crazy person here. Please, please, he's about to go kill someone. <laughs> and the reason is because if you talk to them, they'll say, oh, but, you know, that was the Old Testament law. Jesus, Jesus, you know, he says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So, you know, those things are, those are death penalties to come later. Does it say that in scripture? No, it doesn't. It says that that's what the righteous people do now. Uh, but people say no in all these sorts of ways because they recognize that the way that Jesus described things doesn't match the way that those books describe things. Hmm. And so they use Jesus to counter that and say, well, it's not that it's wrong. It's just not now. But they're saying no, because the Bible text says now. <laughs> they're rationalizing logically that Jesus doesn't make sense at the moment with what that says. So something must have changed or something must be delayed. So they're adjusting scripture. And the moment you start adjusting scripture, you're saying no to it. You're saying no to exactly what it said in the way that it said it. People uh, who do this and they do it all over, um, they rarely recognize that they're doing it. And so right away you could say that a fundamental failure of Christianity uh, is the inability to recognize that we already say no. Mm -hmm. So for instance, uh, in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 6, you have a text that mentions that there, once you're baptized, you can only be forgiven once. And then you're done. Like after baptism, I'm sorry, after, uh, after baptism, you can't be forgiven. That's what it says. It's like you, you only get one time to get forgiven, and that's when you're baptized. And if you screw up after that or fall away from the faith, you can't come back. You're, you're done. You're damned. And it's a text that actually influenced most of early Christianity uh, going in the second, third, fourth century. Um, in fact, a book that was in early Bibles but then was taken out by the fifth century called The Shepherd of Hermas um, it's a it's it's like a revelation that was written after the book of Revelation with John about 30 years after. It's a slave and he, he has these visions. And one of the things that he gets this great vision of is God's grace is bigger than Hebrews. It's so much bigger. God will forgive you at least once more after you're baptized. Hmm. And and that was the huge revelation. Like, oh my God, you know, Hebrews got it wrong. You'll have at least once more after your baptism, so you can be forgiven twice. Um, that's how huge grace is. Um, and and the thing is, is that this was a huge thing. And so, like, when Christians would fall away during uh, uh, persecution, churches would sometimes turn them away and say, "You can't be forgiven. You're damned forever." You know, you mm. you turned away from from the the faith uh, during persecution. God doesn't want you anymore. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is how um, eventually Christians, what, what Christians were doing there is they were giving all of their authority and time to Hebrews, and they were putting the text of Jesus underneath Hebrews. So no matter what Jesus said about forgive endlessly and, and have mer all that had to be subjected underneath the Hebrews passage. But what ends up happening as time goes on is that Christians begin to give priority to the statements by Jesus and they then subjugate Hebrews underneath that. So then they say no to the Hebrew statement and say, well, actually, that doesn't make sense with what Jesus is saying. So what Jesus says takes priority. And so 
people say no all the time. I mean, you take a look at the, the issue of slavery. Uh, today, Christians try so hard to say, oh, the Bible really doesn't support slavery. But that was never the position of Christianity. That was never the position of Christianity. Christians for hundreds and thousands of years defended slavery. The scriptures even state you can be Christian and, and hold slaves, and they don't commend them to free them uh, or for the slaves to free themselves. These passages are in the Bible. In the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, there are passages where God says you are as a culture to take slaves from these foreign nations, and not just for the time, but for all time mm. uh, to continue the practice. This these texts are in the Bible. People tried desperately to avoid them in the last hundred years. Yeah. But before then, Christians didn't, most Christians didn't think why they needed to avoid those texts. They're like, well, the plain word of God says we should take slaves. The plain, I mean, you, it, there's nothing more disturbing than reading the tractates of, of Southern Christians in the early 1800s describing and defending why slavery is biblical. He, reading those, it's so disconcerting yeah because the way they describe everything is based on inerrancy yeah if you reject slavery you reject moses if you reject moses you reject christ i mean like it's this logic <laughs> that they're doing but when christians objected to that and now christians today you know don't believe in it they don't accept it they find it abhorrent what they don't recognize is oh yeah we said no to things in scripture yeah they just go, oh, well, it was just misread. And, and the problem with this lie is that as long as Christians ignore what they're doing, they leave themselves up to the chance of doing things wrong. Mm -hmm. So if you don't recognize how to correctly say no and what things you're saying no to, everything becomes relativized. And suddenly now, uh, what ends up happening? We say no to things just because the culture does. We say no to things just because pressures tell us to point it. We're not actually making decisions. When the abolitionists said no to those aspects of scripture that supported slavery, they did so directly, distinctly, and proudly, basing it on principles that they found in the life of Christ. So they understood at that time what decisions they were making and why. Uh, when you don't know that you're making those decisions and you don't understand why, and you're not basing it in the character of God, then things can go awry. You could potentially have people make decisions and change things and say no to things that are not for the right reasons. So in scripture, there are plenty of stories where people do exactly that. Jonah objects to the Ninevites out of xenophobia, out of racism. He hates his enemies and he's mad God doesn't either. And so for him, he wants God, he wants to say no to God because God forgives and he doesn't want God to forgive. Um, and, and that's a problem. That's a skewed vision. When Miriam objects to Moses about his wife, it's because she's foreign and he, she's angry that, uh, and racist that, that this woman who she doesn't think should be connected to them now is, um, again, God strikes her because of the principle upon which she's saying no, which she's arguing about. When you look at the Israelites saying, we don't want to just answer to God. We want a king. We want foreign leadership. We want all those things, right? God says, well, they're not saying no to you, Samuel. They're saying no to me because they don't want me as their leader anymore. They yeah. want somebody else who's as fickle as they are. Um, these kinds of issues are important because if you don't know and understand the trajectory God is leading, then you might go off of it. 
So there's an important emphasis here that I think the failure of Christianity is not recognizing that it's inevitable they're going to say no. Hmm. And if they don't understand why and how they're saying no, they're likely to make the mistakes of Israel and say no in the wrong ways. So it's really important, uh, and that's why in my book I have a chapter that covers all the the ways in which saying no goes completely awry. Um, it's really important to recognize that this is not an a la carte buffet where it's like, well, you just reject anything you want. Mm-hmm. There, this is there is a guideline principle here, an inerrant principle in God's character. That is what you have to figure out. You have to define and take a look at. And one of the things that I do in the book is to outline, I take every story where people win against God in saying no, and I take every story where people say um, no to God and lose. And you then take what is the principle they were saying no to God about, and you outline the lists on either side. And the funny thing is, when you look at the side where people win, they all look like attributes that we already believe in God. You would look at that and go, why in the world would I say no to God about something like that? God's God is in favor of mercy. God's in favor of justice. God's in favor, right? But then yeah. you look at the list of the things that God, uh, you know, that people lost when they said no to God, and all the things they were fighting about are all things we think are from the devil. And so you start to realize that even within Scripture, in all these stories, there is these these common motifs about what is perceived as the trajectory of God's character. And where it goes wrong for you in objecting to God is when you object to God over his character because you misperceive it. And where you get it right is when you understand his character and you start to intuit exactly what direction it goes in. And of course, the direction it goes in is Christ. But um, the issue that I think the church faces is by trying to ignore that, by trying to imagine that actually, you know... uh, they're not really saying no, that people are just twisting these scriptures to say what they're, by not taking that seriously and owning up to it and making it a spiritual discipline to learn and practice this correctly, they're apt to leave themselves open to having themselves do it wrong. Hmm. And I think we have at times done it wrong. And it's why, unfortunately, people say, well, the church is playing catch up with the culture. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're playing catch up with the culture because we're not recognizing what it is that God called us to do in Genesis 32, hmm. to fight God and to win because we're seeking the blessing of God by rejecting the curse. Hmm. And that's so interesting. I, I don't know how active, I mean, you bring up that the the arc of the narrative is, is Christ and and. Yeah, you brought up abolition in in particular, and I don't know if you've noticed, but and I don't even know if you're you're on Twitter, but there's kind of this resurgence of inerrantists who they would never say that they are, but they're they're vocalizing pro slavery sentiment, and it's and that is what that leads to when you when you don't say no. Quite frankly, is you find yourself in in very problematic uh, situations where someone like you or I would probably dial 911 and be like hey this person is a psychopath so if you want to come get them please do that uh with that being said and, and we've covered so much ground and and thank you so much for for really laying the the foundation of of what your book is about and and in the precedent you were trying to set because I, I genuinely believe that it, it will prove itself helpful for 
the future of the church, which is is something that I know you're interested in and I know I'm interested in and kind of what this whole deconstruction community is about. And with that being said, a lot of what this podcast is about is is creating a practical way of, of embodying certain spiritual disciplines and certain theological practices. And so I'm interested to hear from you, Matt, what what does this look like in practicality for you and I? I mean, in practicality, I think what it looks like, well, there's several layers actually of practicality you could probably perceive in this. One is obviously in your in your reading of the Bible. The question that should always be utmost on one's mind is when you find something that rubs against you, it's not like you should automatically assume that it's wrong, right? That's mm-hmm. It's true that we are not perfect. And there are things like, I mean, Jonah did not think that it was wrong to hate the Ninevites, right? That's why he rejected and, and, and God's mercy rubbed him the wrong way. Um, so it's, it is important that you actually do recognize that it's possible for your values to get twisted so that you potentially misperceive God. Uh, but at the same time, you do have to wrestle because the truth of the matter is, you know, the value and the rule is God seeks blessing, not curse. God seeks the betterment of people, not their, not their destruction. Hmm. So, uh, and that destruction could come in multitudes of ways, not just genocide, but it could come, you know, in, in, in all sorts of mild ways in terms of mental abuse and so forth and, and fear and other things. I mean, God is constantly telling people, fear not, fear not. And yet what do people constantly describe, you know, their feelings with God who are very, very conservative, like, oh, I'm so fearful. Oh, I'm, you know, love casts out fear, but it's very hard for people to sort of prioritize love and give it that place and keep it authoritative. So I think when people are reading scripture, they have to be willing to wrestle. They have to be willing to accept that they won't understand the answer right away. They don't have to understand it right away. But just because they don't understand it does not mean that they don't have to wrestle. Mm-hmm. You can object to something without necessarily declaring that you've won. Right? You, can, you can object and fight throughout the night without necessarily thinking that you've figured it all out. Right? It wasn't until the morning that Jacob understood that he was fighting the divine and could, and could perceive what that meant. So he fought throughout the night, not sure who he was fighting, why he was fighting, any of those things. And we have to be really willing to understand that at the level of devotional reading and scripture reading, that when we're trying to understand things, we're not going to have it all figured out. That does not mean that we have to just, you know, obey and, uh, and accept what we're reading and not fight it. No, fight it, object to it, wrestle with it. You have that freedom. But allow yourself also the freedom for the spirit to move you and to uh, illuminate your own potential prejudices, your own ideas. The, the issue at heart will always be the character of God. And as Christians, we have Jesus Christ as an image of that character, which means that in any wrestling match, Jesus should be front and center in our minds as to how does whatever we're reading relate to the spirit of Christ, or as Paul calls it, Christ's law. You know, how does what I'm reading here reflect on what Christ's law is? Hmm. Um, does this reflect the peace of God? Does this show the love of God? So that's one way. On a devotional level while reading, we have to have those questions in mind. It helps us to understand that when we're debating things, a thus saith the Lord is not going to be the answer. Yeah. It's not. It's not going to be the answer. It may illuminate potentially, but it's actually the answer to any question is going to be, who is the Lord? Hmm. 
That is going to be the question. WWJD is actually quite important. What would Jesus do? That matters because it matters who Jesus is, who God is. That's the question that has to be at the heart of everything. And that's a question that can be difficult for some to really get to. And it's going to require a lot of struggle and questioning because, you know, God, if God wanted things to be super easy, he would have made it super easy. He would yeah. have laid it all out. He doesn't. And the reason is because we, for whatever reason, human beings need to struggle, need the wrestling match, need the embodying of what they believe more than just listening and being robots. So because of that, we have to be open to that. Now, apart from the devotional reading, there's also political implications of this that go beyond uh, in terms of how we think about authority and structure overall, right? I mean, if you imagine, uh, you know, currently as we're talking, for those that may listen to this in the future, President Donald Trump is head of the United States of America right now. And <laughs> oh recently um, we have uh, Paula White, his spiritual advisor, and uh, she made news, uh, I think it was a month or so ago, um, when she said that, uh, you know, I can't say no to, to President Trump because it would be like saying no to God. Now, when she said that statement, in fairness to her, she meant that God was calling her to serve Donald Trump. And so she couldn't say no to the, the, the invitation from Trump because it would be like saying no to the call of God. But the important thing is she assumed when she said that, that in fact, uh, authority worked very similarly, both for Trump and for God, that when God tells you to do something, you must do it. There's no objection. And similarly, with leaders like Trump, who God is working with, you have to agree and work with uh, the general direction they're calling you because that is also where God is needing and leading. Now, the difficulty with this, right, is that their view of scripture and their relationship to understanding authority as a top-down approach leads them to certain dispositions towards leaders that they're favorable towards. And it's important to recognize that when you begin to understand that God's relationship to humanity is in such a way in which we defend the principle while objecting to its application. So we defend God's character, but we object to God going against that character or presenting himself as opposite of that character. Uh, Luther called it God wearing the devil's mask. Can you recognize that it's a mask as opposed to um, just believing that God became the devil? So, mm. you know, or, or a, a political way of saying it in the past would be to say, I defend my country against those people in the government who would wish to take it away from its values, right? Like, I mean, conservatives should really understand that. That's been a long time idea of theirs, you know? Yeah. I can stand against who the president is uh, because uh, he's going against the values the country stands for, right? I'm pro-country, but I'm against the government at the moment, hmm. right? That's a very American idea. There's some unconditional value in the country that I stand for, and I'm for the country as long as the country's for that value. But if the government turns against that value, then I'm no longer for that government while still maintaining that I'm for the country. Yeah. So in that perspective, right, that's the exact same way it works with God. 
that needs to be understood as that works within political authorities as well, so that we understand that we can be for the values of a Christian nation uh, if you know, we're defining Christian nation as loving, graceful, a bunch of things that lots of other religions also share. But what I'm saying is, is that in terms of understanding the values of our country as reliant or or even dreamed as being based on something that is a higher and um, and much more deeply important than just the name and the land, we have to be willing to recognize, especially conservatives, that you do you are not supposed to have a sort of party allegiance that is detached from those values. Mm-hmm. So what we see today is many conservatives and Republicans who will stand by Donald Trump no matter what he does because they believe that whatever he's doing, it's serving some ultimate good, and that good is more important than dealing with the issues that have happened. They blind themselves to justice because they look at some other aspect that they're more intending to give focus to. Mm-hmm. So I think in that regard, that's problematic because like in the book of Job, uh, Job accuses his, his, the three friends who are defending God. And he says, look, are you really going to take the case for God? Are you going to defend him against the evils that he's done? I assure you that if you try to defend God, God will come and curse you. And sure enough, at the end of the book, Job is right. God says, I'm going to kill them if you don't pray for their forgiveness, because their defense of me merits me killing them. Mm. Because what they defended was evil. Now that's important to understand that God is depicted in the Bible as caring so deeply about justice that he himself must be held to account mm. to the most stringent most stringent measures even as any human would. And that just as God said in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you are not to give difference to the great uh, and and look away from the poor. Similarly, you are not to give some uh, measure of benefit of the doubt to God if you're not going to give it the same to anybody else. You have to hold God to account. So even though obviously the book of Job shows in its narrative that there's this much bigger picture, there's these much bigger themes that are happening, at the same time, God still cared that the three friends did not care enough about justice to hold God to account when it looked like that was a problem. So similarly, what we can draw politically from that is that people, and right now it's Republicans, it can easily and always has switched to either side of the party. So there may very well become a time where we'll have a Democratic nominee who's crazy and the Democrats are trying to, to line up a party line. It's, it's, there is no right and wrong here. The, each party can be blinded by power easily. Because politics and power just they create corruption. They 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 foster it because people like to preserve what they have. But the point is, is that at least at the present, with the Republican administration that exists and with the unique kind of personality that Donald Trump is, uh, Republican evangelicals who feel that they must defend Trump from attacks because of some other aspects they care more about they themselves would be the object of Job's warning. God will curse you for what you're doing if you seek to defend the undefendable. You must, uh, as a Christian, recognize that it is possible to still defend and support the objectives that you want 
while still holding those people who are doing wrong in its service accountable. And unless you're willing to hold those people accountable to their problems, despite how it might affect you, then you don't have a leg to stand on morally. Hmm. Um, and so there is this implication where this kind of perspective does not just affect how we read the Bible. It also affects how we understand authority in general and how our disposition is supposed to be with that authority uh, so that we support leaders in, in where we think the trajectory they should go, but we don't allow that trajectory to suddenly blind us from what problems they occur. Um, and I think like that's a careful balance. I don't explore that in the book for those that are curious. I don't, I don't actually deal with that issue in the book, um, but it's an obvious implication of where this kind of thinking would lead us to, as opposed to where others would have us go in terms of blind obedience, you know, party mm-hmm. line. If the military sergeant says it, go do it. You know, the goal is what matters. Don't allow the enemy to distract. No, it matters. Not that we're Puritans, but it does matter that if somebody commits a crime or if somebody does, in fact, abuse their office, even if you don't agree with how to handle it, the mere fact that people are willing to deny that it happened or to deny that it's a problem is a problem. Because what that suggests is is that justice is being skewed in the eyes of those who are most needed to keep it to the fire. Hmm. Right. And and so with that in mind, I I guess question in closing when it comes to practicality, both on the theological and political spectrum, something I think about that I get pushed back a lot for. And I know a lot of other people get pushed back for, uh, particularly more so in in the political sphere. But I guess it, it does really apply to the theological concept. But what in light of that, what do we make of Romans 13? Yeah, I, I think I think that with regards, to, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was just about to reference and I was like, no, nah, hold back. Um, <laughs> but no, so uh, the thing is, is it's true. Uh, I think that what we have to recognize is that um, God works through, like what is, I think it's Genesis, it's in Genesis in the story of Joseph, where Joseph says, what you planned for evil, God turned into good. Uh-huh. It's not that God planned the evil. It's not that God, and by evil here, we'll just, we'll just substitute, you know, it's not that God plans for whatever happens and says, this must happen. Um, not always. But the thing is, is that God works through all things for good. Oh, wait, mm-hmm. that's another Bible text. Um, so the thing is, is that what God is always doing is bringing things, trying to move things back into a good direction. So what I think Paul's understanding in Romans is essentially is that God is working through each leader. It's not, it, it's not like, uh, per se, God wants each leader who gets in. God does not always get what God wants. That's clear even in scripture with the stories where, God, where people say no to God. God sometimes lets people win wrongly. Like when the Israelites say, we want a king, and God says, fine, give it to them. Hmm. You, you, they thought they won. God says, no, they're losing but I'll let them lose because they're going to have to lose big time in terms of understanding how bad it was. Um, so in that perspective, right, I think Paul is trying to say that, look, leaders are being used by God and we should always be as supportive as possible in regards to them leading us in the general trajectory they go, recognizing that they're failing humans. At the same time, right, 
when leaders contradict God, or uh, I mean, specifically the, the character of God, when they are begin to take us in directions that go contrary to who God is, it is a responsibility to fight them on those issues without necessarily fighting them themselves. And I think sometimes people struggle with this because people allow their emotions to get in the way of like dealing with policy. So for instance, so many people dislike Donald Trump as a person, including myself. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the issues that really have to be at stake are what he's doing as a leader regarding policies. Mm-hmm. If you make it about like almost no Republic. I mean, when you talk to Republicans, they say, oh, if you really push them, I've never met a Republican who told me I like Donald Trump. He's a cool guy in terms of his personality. There are some people who are like that, but yeah. many of them will say, no, I hate the guy. He's an asshole. And I meet them all the time. They're like, I support him, but he's an asshole. So in that regards, right, what they're doing is they're saying, look, if you try to attack him as a person, I don't care. So the problem is people tend to like to attack the lowest common denominator. Like the attacks on Obama were never on his policies usually. They were always lowest common denominator. Only a couple issues ever actually got to the level of policy. And so when people want to attack a leader, they need to be attacking policies. They need to be attacking specific ideas in the fight for the direction of the country and the direction of values that they think they should not be allowing themselves to mix that fight up with personalities. Even when you dislike someone's personality, um, I think as Christians, we need to understand that even if somebody were evil, God is still working to try and bring good. So it doesn't mean that you, you ignore it. It doesn't mean that you kind of sidestep it. It does mean that you direct, you, you have to try to work as much as possible to help God work all things towards good, right? Like, I mean, we are co-laborers with Christ. We are people who are working with God in this process. So just objecting isn't enough. We have to be involved in helping to steer the direction in the right way. And I think like there is that careful balance of recognizing that even an egotistical individual still thinks that they're doing the right thing. Hmm. Right. It's not like every single thing Donald Trump does is going to be wrong. Not every single thing he does is going to be a, a bad thing. And even people who are terribly misguided will still do great things and still manage to do good things because people who have much better sense around them are pushing them. And so the thing is, like, we have to recognize this is not a dictatorship. This is not a single person who runs things. We're all involved in this as a country. We're all involved. Any country is involved, hopefully, with their leadership. And I think as Christians, we're called to never give up, to not become hopeless, not simply to uh, rebel against, but also to work with and fight towards a common goal. Um, If it's impossible to do that, then so be it you you have to then you know you need to change things but i honestly i think one of the biggest problems we have politically in at least the united states is that people do not actually try as hard as they can Hmm. people yell as hard as they can people fight uh aloud on issues as far as they can 
But I think the reason why Congress has one of the lowest approval ratings in history, the reason why people despise congressmen and senators, the reason why people dislike the whole government system is we don't see people trying. We see everybody fighting for their own interests and nobody paying attention to what the country needs. And so in that regards, I think that what Christians would be best served on both sides doing fight as hard as you can for what you're what you're wanting but you're not going to work well if you always demonize those who you're opposing it's even if somebody acts demonically they're still human and if Mm -hmm. there's one good thing about the christian message it's that uh it's that even when we're demonic we can be we can be saved that doesn't mean blanket forgiveness. Like, oh, yeah, yeah oh, it's okay. You're forgiven because you just said sorry or something. No, it means there can be repentance. And so the thing is, repentance is not just yelling out loud in the Capitol and saying, you need to repent. It's saying, I'm going to work towards that level of repentance. I'm going to, um, I'm going to uh, like Paul would say, I'm, I'm suffering on your behalf. I'm struggling to, to do all that I can for the behalf of these churches I'm working for. Uh, the church's role, Christian's role, is to really be involved in that deep fight. Uh, and, and that fight not only for the policy issues, but for people. Um, I'm, I'm saddened when I see spiritual leaders around President Trump who enable his egotism rather than who try to push back and help to uh, humble him to Mm. bring him in different directions. And again, that's a kind of the problem that we face here where people are so distracted by whatever their, their specific goal is that they don't pay attention to the broader problems and issues that are needed. Mm. Uh, I think that's carried on way too much. I'm sorry. I think you'll probably need to edit this. (laughs) No, no, it's it's great. This conversation went way too far. You'll probably need to cut it down. No, it's been great. And that, and that reminds me of, uh, within the within the prophets especially during the exile of kind of the the way of the exile that set forth of of there's this expectation of should we rebel or should we compromise or or what should we do but the the way that subversion is is encouraged is of course speak truth to power and and be countercultural and and be subversive but pray for the city and work to the prosperity of the city and put down roots and have children and it, it's just this interesting paradigm of, of of a of a civilization that has a history of revolution against empires that have put them under their thumb but in these moments the prophets are like hey like yes this is not fair yes this is not good yes this is not towards the prosperity of of Israel but this is the way that it is meant to be and and Matt, it, it's funny that you mentioned that what what you mentioned earlier of of this going long because usually I I do keep these at forty five minutes ish forty five minutes to fifty minutes but this content and this this way of thinking is so important that uh, I mean other than that us talking about editing it I I want to keep this at this length because I genuinely believe that this will equip people to live better lives, both in the, in the church sphere and also in the political sphere. And with that being said, two questions, what are, what are you working on right now, if anything, and where can people find you? 
So right now I'm working on the second book, uh, which is tentatively titled Fighting with God, A Theology of Confrontation. Hmm. Um, that book is going to be my attempt at creating a systematic theology built around this idea. Um, and I'm, I'm probably 75% done with it. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That would be a much deeper uh, more prolonged kind of exploration of the implications of these ideas and how they affect all sorts of things. Hmm. But um, people can find me if, if they want to. They can find me on Twitter at M Cortman. So that's the letter M K O R P P as in Paul uh, M A N. And um, they can also find me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page, Matthew J Cortman. Um, they can also find me on my website, uh, which is uh, www.matthewjcortman.com. And uh, if they want to find the book's website, they can find www.sayingnotogod.com. There's a video there and and a free preview. Uh, So I would hope that um, people will take a look at the book and... um, and not, not to like wholesale, just eat it up or, or accept everything that's in it. What I really hope is that the book opens up questions that people haven't had before hmm. will lead to them thinking and having being, finding a way to have discussions with people that they've never had before, finding common ground. Um, the reason I wrote the book was really to find a sort of common ground on which liberals and conservatives could come in the middle and actually talk to one another uh, without having it turn into a yelling match or having it talk past each other. That was the the goal and hope for the book. And um, so far from what I've seen, it's been doing pretty good with that respect. Um, but I, I, you know, just one last comment because we live in such a polarized age, um, hmm. going back to the discussion about uh, Donald Trump. Um, I, I guess I'd want to sum up everything I said by pointing out that you can be against what Donald Trump is doing without being against Donald Trump. Mm, yeah. You can, you know, you can, you can be for God with, every, with, with who God is without always being for everything God claims that he's going to do. You, you can stand for a principle uh, and still um, be able to object to things that happen in the name of it that are, that you think contradict. So it's important that people recognize that, no matter who the president is, um, you, without them just outright, you know, straight up (laughs) rebelling against the whole country, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, we live in a place and a time where we have a unique liberty that was not given to the early Christians like Paul. They did not have the ability to influence politics in Rome. They did not have the ability to have voice for their people to influence the government. They did not have that. Um, so they still managed in that regards to say, well, we can be against what the emperor does and still be for, um, the prosperity of the empire. Mm -hmm. We, on the other hand, have the ability to have our voices heard. We have the ability to be involved at the most minute levels of the government and to have our voices be heard. So even more so should, as a Christian, our employment of that goodwill and devotion towards uh, the values we believe in still guide us to um, 
to help steer the country as well as we can to to always put the other first before our own self interests uh, and to recognize that the other is indeed our own interest as well. Hmm. I think I think that unfortunately we need a lot of both Christianity and the general public need a lot of time and healing to understand how it's possible to support and at the same time object to something. And I hope that my book and the principle uh, that scripture has regarding the ability to support God and still object to things that are said about God can help in some sense to kind of um, reorient how we understand that issue too, even if my book specifically isn't trying to do that in this particular form it takes. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that's so good. And, and I, I love, I love your heart in that. And I think that's really the message that, that I hope to get across. And, and I'm, I am a very vocal person about my dislike for the policies that Donald Trump puts forth, but that is very, Absolutely. that's very convicting for me to hear like you can, you cannot like his policy and you cannot like the things that he's upholding, but that doesn't mean you have to hate him as a per or not even hate, but dislike him as a person. Um, I mean, and, and, and feel free to dislike him as a person. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying not to, you know, but at the same time you, and, and I mean, I'm not, and no one should understand this as like me equivocating on like how we respond to terrible injustices. Yeah. So, you know, when children are being caged at the border, uh, you know, these are these are important issues. You don't just like say, "Oh well, calm down, don't talk." No, no, no. You should be out. You should be vocal. At the same time, it should not simply be a yelling match. You yeah. should be genuinely mobilizing people to work to believe that we must convince, we must work, we must put pressure to make this end. Um, and but at the same time, to understand that. Uh, people can be misguided, people can do wrong, and people can sin, people can do terrible things and make terrible mistakes. And the goal should be to understand that this is not a zero sum game, where it's like, all right, well, you've made this terrible mistake. Now, our only interest is let's, let's concentrate on the next election. Mm -hmm. Right? You, you have to work at fixing these problems. We have the ability to influence our leaders to actually be involved in the discussions that happen, but most people don't choose to be. And I think that um, that's, that kind of apathy or feeling of hopelessness leads us into terrible directions and it leads us to become polarized. It leads us to, uh, to talk past each other. Uh, it, the, there are issues upon which you cannot equivocate, but at the same time, you must, you, you must communicate. You must learn how to speak across the aisle it does not help to say, well, you're going to die in 30 years, so I don't have to care, or you'll die in 20 years, I don't have to care about your views. Mm -hmm. No, their views matter, because unless you understand why they're thinking the way that they do, as despicable as you think so, unless you understand the motivations that lead them that way, they may all die, you may create your utopia, and then it'll all come back again. Yeah. And that's exactly like what you're describing in regards to Twitter, where people are still supporting slavery and so forth, or saying, well, it's not as bad as they think, because you're not taking care to understand how the problem was created. And because you're not rooting it out, you are still allowing for it to fester and grow and come back again. And so again, you may solve the problem today and only lead to it later again, because you're not paying attention to how it's being sustained now. Why are people feeling the way that they do? 
find those insecurities, find those issues and tackle them because otherwise, not only for their sake, but for your children's sake, that these issues do not come back. I mean, unfortunately, people used to say that about Auschwitz with saying like, you know, never again, we're going to make sure that every generation knows about what happened at the Holocaust. And that is not happening. People, younger generations do not remember what happened. They are forgetting that knowledge. And it's mm-hmm. because, unfortunately, people are not uh, taking the time to instill and make sure that this doesn't happen again. So what ends up happening over time, you're creating a situation in which the past can repeat itself because people have forgotten. People are not, um, you haven't removed the issue that makes it possible. You have not rooted out that that cancer and so it's just going to come back. Yeah. Gosh, that yeah, that that makes so much sense. And but before we go, I I really want to encourage you in the work that you're doing. I think it, it especially even just within the context of this conversation, there there are so many. There's so I feel like every time I have a conversation, this is how it goes. But there are so many answers that I found, and so much fruit that I, I've found in in this conversation in the form of answers, but also so many that I've found in the form of questions of, of where do we go next in, in light of these things. And I, one of the things that comes up a lot in, in circles that we run in is, is people that are kind of pioneering. Uh, I think Rob Bell, Brian Zond, uh, Greg Boyd's another one that sometimes comes up of people that have taken, and Rachel Held Evans are people that have kind of taken theological bullets for us to be able to freely explore and try to understand our faiths in in different and new and fresh ways and i want to say with this title you are you are putting yourself into that category especially with the work that you're doing and even just with the title of saying no to god it's it's a bold title it's a bold look it's it's a bold understanding but it's also very honest and very very truthful and very it's going to be a good mirror it's a good mirror for me it's a good mirror for the people that I hope read it. And especially we're recording this with, with coronavirus on, on the horizon and we don't know where that's going. But if you guys are on quarantine or if you guys are, are trying to support an author or a thinker or a theologian, I would highly recommend buying Matt's book. It, I, I literally just bought it while we were talking. Um, and I'm very excited, especially after this conversation to dive in. So Matt, thank you so much for having this conversation. And I'm so excited for that next book as well. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for having me here. Um, it's it's very kind of you to describe me that way. Um, I wouldn't. Uh, those <laughs> those people have done so so much, as, and um, especially Miss Evans. And mm-hmm. um, it, this, what I would say is that if anybody actually, and we are recording during like the craziness of coronavirus, going to for dating this episode, you could say like uh, all the Apple stores just closed, so um, <laughs> things are pretty crazy, and. Um, I, if I were to say anything about coronavirus in regards to this, I'd say that those Christians who want to say that coronavirus is being caused by God or that God is trying to curse nations with it or that this is part of some, um, yeah, I would say that that's something that my book would lead us to say no to. Yeah. Say no, this is, this is not how God works. God does not do things like this. And that kind of a theology is the sort of theology that, uh, my book would say it's very important that you understand why this would be no. And people will say, oh, but there's Bible text. There's Bible text. You can you can see how God did in the past with it. No, 
that's why it's important to understand. This is not how the character of God leads us hmm. uh, to do that. But even if you don't necessarily accept that, although I'd be surprised if someone listening to this doesn't already come from that perspective. Um, but even if not, the very fact that you can object to those kinds of ideas, the fact that you have that freedom means that you are definitely required by God to exercise that and yeah. to wrestle so that you don't just accept that somebody says, oh yeah, this punishment's for, there's a, this is something, a punishment from God. Well, that very concept requires you to wrestle with it and to truly take the time to say, is this really reflective of who God is? Is this the God that Jesus came to reveal? For me, I'd say no. And, yeah. um, and I think what God is doing at this moment is doing everything possible to fight against this and to influence uh, leaders to do what is best in the interests of people. Um, hmm. And, you know, God is not here punishing. God is here trying to save. Hmm. And, and I think that's a perfect place to close. And, and, and I guess closing remarks would be, as, as we mentioned, Brian Zond, what he has to say of, of God. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a moment where God hasn't been like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. Matt, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris.